Welcome to Before You Go. I'm Nicole Franklin. And I'm Bryant Monte. Bryant, I'm thrilled we have a truly talented and busier than ever artist, photographer, poet, all-around Renaissance man, Adger Cowens with us today. Welcome, Adger. Yay. Thank you. Welcome, Adger. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know, what I'd like to do is start you back to the early days. I always like to ask about people's childhood that come on our show. So you grew up in Columbus, mm-hmm. Ohio, is that right? Yes, Columbus, Ohio, that's right. And tell us a little bit about growing up in Columbus. What was that like? One horse town. <laughs> uh-huh. One horse country town. But uh, in where I lived, you know, I grew up um, in a neighborhood that was mixed, mostly um, black people. Mm-hmm. And my aunt and uncle lived next door. He had a cleaning a business called Superior Cleaners. And my grandmother lived three blocks away. So uh, if I did anything in school, my grandmother got it first. And my aunt, she told my aunt, and then my aunt told my mother. So I couldn't really do anything. <laughs> <laughs> you were surrounded. I was always in, into something. Yeah. You were surrounded, huh? And you were a church kid, which. Adger and I, Bryant, and our audience, we met in New York, and I knew Adger as a free spirit. So I was I, I was quite surprised to learn. And by the way, everybody, Adger has a book, Art in the Moment, Life and Times of Adger Cowens, where um, I just did some reading, and I'm like, wow, <laughs> church kid to um, <laughs> this free artist. Um, oh, yeah. I, I grew up in the church, Union Grove Baptist Church, and my whole family went there. And uh, we sat in a pew, most of my family, my mother, my father, my sister, and my three brothers, we all sat in one pew. Mm-hmm. And I was a trustee, mm-hmm. you know, a junior trustee. In other words, we would pass the plates out, you know, for people to put their money in. And then we'd go back and count it. And then the bigger ushers would come, the senior ushers would come back. So um, this is a story. (laughs) (laughs) You know, in the Baptist church, when you get preaching, you know, people start running around the church and screaming and yelling Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, so before the service always starts, you have to say a verse from the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so my cousin and I, we sat together, Junior, so this one Sunday, everybody was standing up, going to verse, and so it came our turn, and uh, I said, Jesus wept, and he said, Moses slept. Moses <laughs> <laughs> slapped his Moses side of his. I mean, what kind of verse is that? You know, Jesus wept, Moses slept. So anyway, but we were always getting into trouble, you know. <laughs> but it was a great community because there were all the people that lived in the community that were there and people didn't own the store this guy owned the gas station mm-hmm. we had our usual village drunk uh, buster and buster had been in the war so i didn't know at that time that he was sort of shell shock mm-hmm. but he would always be drinking during the week and fighting with his wife but on sunday there he was all cleaned up suit and everything with a big black eye oh uh, <laughs> It was, just, it was just the way I grew up in the community and all kinds of people. Now, what verse did he quote? What was his verse? No. Oh, his verse, I don't know. I don't remember what his verse was. <laughs> but uh, we thought we were being smart, you know. How do you think that shaped you in terms of 
the talents that you've discovered as you got older and some of the things that how, how you've developed these talents and these, your gift of art and photography? Well, it was my mother. You know, my mother was a very loving person and also a humanitarian. You know, I grew up in the Second World War toward the end. Mm-hmm. And people would knock on our door sometimes, and my mother would feed people. She would give them clothes, whatever. So I learned this sense of loving people and, and a sense of uh, humanity from my mother. You know, after I left and went to college, I, my religion and church kind of waned a little bit because I began to learn things like why was there snow on the roof when Jesus was born? In Jerusalem, and Jerusalem at that time was a desert. Exactly. So I began to study religion <laughs> mm-hmm. and find out things, but I began to understand that you know, religion and education, you know, <laughs> politics, was the systems to control people. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you were outside that system, you were a sinner. So I became a sinner, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I think there's definitely the organized, the organized <laughs> aspect of religion, and then there's the spiritual. And then what I do find with artists, and um, that's why I was surprised to read about your background, is there's the questioning, always questioning, you know, always moving yeah. further from the text to say, well, let's question the text. And then you're a professional observer of people. So, mm-hmm. and seeing right. how it all fits together. But um, community, for me personally, community is what came through me growing up in church. Um, I had a Catholic background. Mm-hmm. I did not grow up in Baptist church. But um, the community of it all. I mean, these are some of our right. most trusted friends today um, are from mm-hmm. the church. You know, So mm-hmm. I think it definitely has, uh, you know, it's pros and it's, and it's questions. <laughs> right. Right. But it's a, it's a uniting factor in terms of black people. Yeah. It's a chance where families could get together and talk and be with one another. Because during the week, in those days, people worked hard. You know, they didn't have these little jobs where they worked two hours. People worked hard. So on the weekends, going to church was an event where okay. people could come together and commune. And that's, that was the main thing that I think that I learned from that is a sense of community and understanding that there were all kinds of people that existed. And when I was real little, they would stand me on the chair of the deacon's chair, mm-hmm. and I would recite the books of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know and they said, that, that boy is going to be a preacher. <laughs> <laughs> little did they know. <laughs> Little did they know. <laughs> He's got to go away. Well, not too far. I mean, you're a nice guy. So I think you have yeah, a lot of, yeah, you kept a lot of principles <laughs> yeah. there within you, mm-hmm. which is terrific. You said you grew up during the war, Edger. And let, you want to tell people what yeah. year you were born? 1936. Yeah. So, and you had a cousin, right? Cousin Earl, who's a Tuskegee Airman. Yeah, my cousin yeah, my cousin, Dr. Earl Sherrard, was a flyer, uh, one of the um, Tuskegee Airmen. He flew with Vincent Mono Davis. He was shot down several times, and he had all the awards. You could get Blue Cross, Red Cross, uh, all these crosses and spaghetti on his chest. <laughs> but he was a uh, pediatrician, 
and he graduated. I guess he was one of the first black men to graduate in medicine from Ohio University, Ohio State University. Mm-hmm. And that was back in the day. He's about 20, 10, about 10 years older than me. So we were very, very close. And uh, we used to go over to his house when he was on furlough and he'd tell us about what it was like flying an airplane and all that. So my cousin and I, so we were all excited about, you know, joining up and fighting the war against the Germans and the Japanese and all these other people. But I think that what younger people today don't understand is there was a time in America when every family had a uh, book, a stamp book that had cars, um, tanks, airplanes, ships, all this bombs, foot mm-hmm. soldiers. And this was a book that you used when you went to the market to buy food and you could only buy so much. Oh. And so every five, every family had a book because mm-hmm. the best foods and the best drinks and best everything was going to the front lines for our soldiers, as they told us. So, um, there was a ration on food. You could only buy so much food. Mm-hmm. I tell people that, and they say, oh, nah, that's ridiculous, but it was true. Mm-hmm. Each family could only buy so much food. So if there was only two people in the family, you know, you could only get so much. But, you know, it was six six of us, so. Yeah. You know, and my, my mother loved butter, so we put our little stamps together so my mother could get butter, because butter was extremely expensive at, at that time. You know, to pay $2 for butter was, what? And eggs, you could buy a dozen eggs for a dollar. Yeah. Things were, you know, food and stuff was very, very cheap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I kind of bridged the um, the industrial age and yeah. and where we are now. Because, you know, in my lifetime, young when I was younger, that's when the sewing machine and the sweeper and the refrigerator and all these things came out. Then the washing machine was automatic. Everything became automatic. They sold the woman's work is easy because now you have a vacuum cleaner. You know, <laughs> clean the rug. It became more to do. It wasn't easy. It became more to do with these machines. But also, in terms of it, it changed also um, the arts, the idea of, you know, taking a picture and developing it. And Kodak came out with this little camera that everybody could take a picture. I mean, when I told my father I wanted to study photography, he said, that's ridiculous. You got to get a job. He said, that's not a job. He said, that's a hobby. And it was at that time. It wasn't considered an art. It was like, and though people were taking great pictures, nobody bought a photograph. That was, you know, anybody yeah. can take a picture, send it to Kodak, they send it back and shoot more pictures. What was the revelation, Adger, that you felt confident enough that this was something you wanted to do and you were going to prove to your father that this was a career? Well... It's not quite like that. Oh. <laughs> my mother, my mother said, "Oh, honey, that's what he wants to do." And I, well, I was sitting around that summer. Okay, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, my sister's boyfriend had a magazine, and, and it said Ohio University gives degree in photography. Mm-hmm. I said, "Well, I can do that because my math and English wasn't too good, but it was a state school, so I could go there." Yeah. And um, so. I didn't know what I, I didn't know what I was getting into. I had no idea. I just wanted to get away from the house and family. I wanted to be on my own. So um, I went there the first year at OU. I did what most students do: party. Second year, <laughs> party. 
third year? <laughs> at third home. year. No. All right. No. There goes those Sundays at church. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. I didn't go to church at all. My mother said, do you go to church down there? I said, no, Mama, I don't. They don't have any. Oh. There's churches everywhere, boy. <laughs> <laughs> there was one, but I didn't go. Oh. Anyway, right. my third year, my uncle said, you know, why don't you find somebody? Well, he didn't say black in those days. He said, why don't you find a Negro who's doing what you want to do? Mm. And I didn't know any. And so I asked my teacher, and um, one of them, Walter B. Allen, who's like a hippie from New York, he said, I think there's a guy at Life Magazine. And I said, oh, okay. And uh, I got, they made him, it was 50 something. They did a little magazine about life photographers, and Gordon was there. And I wrote him a letter. Gordon Parks. Mm hmm. And I wrote him a letter and told him I was in school and that I go back and forth to New York because in those days we were all crazy about jazz. And our sculpture teacher, David Hostetler, would, you know, we'd drive to New York on the weekend. He say, "Monks, it's five spot." <laughs> oh wow, <laughs> really? Let's go see. So we would jump in, the, in his car, his station wagon, and people would take turns driving, mm-hmm. and we would sleep in the car, you know, and go to the jazz club and see mm-hmm. Monk mm-hmm. on the weekend. People, you drive to New York on the weekend from Ohio. How many hours is that? A lot of hours, and get him running around. New 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 York, you know, the bookstores. I mean, that's why yeah. I first found uh, Roy D. Carabas' book that he did with Langston Hughes, Sweet Fly Paper of Life. Nice. I think it was like 25 cents oh. at that time. I would love a copy but, of um, that. <laughs> I would love a copy yeah, of that. Yeah, right. He's going to pay a big dollar now. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you, when did you really see that you could do photography and, and really you were good at it? When 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 did that light come on? Well, I never thought of being about good at it. I was, what happened? thing that turned the tide for me was I took a picture, I guess when I was 17, 18 years old, called the balloons. And it's a picture of little kids holding these balloons, but they're poor kids. And I was at my mother's, my grandmother's church on Shiloh Baptist and on Mount Vernon Avenue. And uh, I was taking pictures and these kids were looking at the balloon man, but they didn't have any money. I mean, balloons were like two cents or something. So I bought them balloons. And gave it to them. And I realized that as I looked at the picture more and more, it was about happiness because they had smiling mm-hmm. faces and they were happy. It wasn't about these poor kids holding blooms. That's what the picture shows, these poor kids, but the smiles on their face. Mm-hmm. And then I started showing people my photographs and listening to what they had to say about them. And I realized that it was a cheap way of psychology for me into their head. What they said about the photographs had nothing to do with me. It had to do with what they thought and what they saw and their experience mm-hmm. of seeing work or not seeing work. So it became very interesting to me to try and get something in my photographs that would move people. So it ended up with me really understanding that in order to do that, you have to capture some human emotion that transfers from that photograph to the other person. And then I became obsessed with that, the idea of capturing emotion. And then I realized at some point, Gordon and I used to talk about it all the time, that you don't take pictures with your eyes, but you take pictures with your heart. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it's the heart that feels, 
to the eyes only see, the heart that feels. So that's what really changed it all for me. Then, then I really got busy, you know, um, and I left school and I came to New York and I worked with Gordon. Yeah, I don't think and, we finished um, that story. So Gordon responded to your letter? Yeah. He said, uh, you know, look me up when you come to New York. So I looked mm-hmm. him up one of those weekends when I was a junior where he came to hear Miles Davis, I think, at Carnegie Hall. Wow. And so the next day I called him. He said, where are you? I said, I'm, you know, New York. He said, well, come on up. And I got on the train and went up. And uh, this is what really made me horrible. <laughs> I was waiting for Gordon at White Frame Station, and I see this car, this Thunderbird, powder blue, mm-hmm. with leather interior. Nice. And this black man driving up saying, uh, you at your house? I said, yeah, Gordon Parks. And I got in the car, and I think I was in a daze. I thought... Yeah, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> you know, nobody had a, a, a Corvette at that time. Powder blue popped down. We went to his house. It was like she had a split level house, mm-hmm. which was in a new way of architecture at that time. Uh, he had a swimming pool. And all. I was like, this guy's making money, real money. Oh, this is why I'm going to do this. Yeah. yeah. That kind of really nailed it. And then, you know, I just had a a thing about being able to make pictures that move people. That's where I was really concerned about. I never thought about it as art. I never thought about it as a career. Mm-hmm. I thought of, I just enjoyed taking pictures. All the ideas after that came later. That I have an idea of being art, the idea of being an exhibitionist, and all, all that came later on because they didn't have those things at, at that time. There were no books. Mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. photography or photographers in the 50s. None. Ansel Adams, all of them, none. They, none of them had books. It was only after Ansel Adams was on the cover of Time Magazine, that was 1979, mm-hmm. and he sold a photograph called Moonrise Over Hernandez, and he sold it for $1,500, and people went crazy. Mm. They said, I would never pay $1,500. That <laughs> photograph now is probably worth $15,000. Yeah, wow. But it seems like um, yeah. Gordon Parks, I, I I wish I had seen you and Gordon Parks together. I know I saw him <laughs> once, but I don't think you were in the room. So that would have been like blowing me away. But <laughs> um, so you and Gordon Parks would just what, hang out? I mean, how do, <laughs> what was well, your relationship? After, and who went to Brazil first? <laughs> I think I went, I think I went to Brazil first. Oh, wow. But I think um, Gordon was like a, a father to me, oh. you know. Uh, I would say my creative father. Yeah. He was very much like my my father in the sense that he was hardworking uh-huh. um, and just very disciplined in, in terms of work, you know. Uh, and he didn't take no for an answer. And he was very creative in what he did. And he was self-taught. So uh-huh. he worked harder than most people because he was always trying to do something. Well, I, I have this theory. Because everybody used to ask me about Gordon all the time. And I think because I did work closely with him, and when I came back from, and it was out of school, and I came back, and I called him, he said, where are you? I said, I'm at the Y. He said, get out of there. And he said it with such, you know, fever that I thought, wow, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I went up 
And he said, Jax, he said, um, you can he, live here with me and my, he called you my Jax. family. He called you Jax. You're yeah. an adjunct, but he called you Ajax. Jax. Well, you know, my, my nickname was Ajax. Okay. My name yeah. was Ajax. Okay, go friend. ahead. And he called me Jax. How, how'd yeah. you get the name Ajax? So, can I pause you there? Can I pause oh, you? I got the name Ajax because when point. I was in high school, I was a good basketball player. Oh. And uh, on the weekends, uh, Mr. Hannon, who was a janitor, would open up the doors on Saturday for us to play basketball. So this one Saturday, I was I was hot, and I was getting all the rebounds. And he said, "Oh man, you're cleaning the backboards just like Ajax." And everybody That's started calling me Ajax. <laughs> That's where I got the name Ajax. Clean them up. Yeah, clean. I, I was getting all the rebounds, <laughs> but. And Ajax would just come out around that time, that's too. You know? <laughs> so uh, that's how I got the name. And it stuck. And Everybody, all, even through college, people call me Ajax. <laughs> I had a stamp that said photographs by Ajax at one point. <laughs> that's how I got Ajax's name. But in working with Gordon and living at his house with the family, I became a family member because Gordon Jr. and I were very close. We were around the same age. And where did, where did he live? Maybe, was he in the suburbs yeah. with that house with a pool? Or where he, was he? He lived in White Plains. White no, Plains, okay. White Plains, mm-hmm. New York. Yeah, I mean, he ended up in Indy living in Plaza, you know, mm-hmm. after uh, uh, the kids were up and everything. He was living in UN Plaza. You can look down the East River and see how he's beautiful. At the United Nations, yeah. But I think in, in those days, Gordon was traveling a lot and doing stuff. But um, so I became his assistant. I met all the guys who worked there at Life Magazine, Izzy, every everybody who was there, Joel, every, everybody, Eugene Smith. But I had already met Eugene Smith before mm-hmm. because when I was in school, I had two friends who were crazy as me about photography. And uh, they became famous in the photography world. Paul Fusco, who did a book on um, Kennedy, mm-hmm. and uh, James Corrales, who took the picture of the march in Alabama in Selma. Hmm. It's the one where there's a sun in the corner, and all you see a whole bunch of people marching. That was James Corrales' photograph. Nice. So we were coming to New York one weekend, and we said, let's go see Eugene Smith. <laughs> because mm-hmm. nobody cared in those days about making an appointment. So we knew where he lived on Sixth Avenue. We went and knocked on the door. It was at eleven o'clock at night, and he said, "Who is it?" We some students, you know. <laughs> he said, "From where?" He said, "From Ohio University." So he came down. He let us in. He said, "I'm in the dark room." So he ran to the dark room, and we were standing around in the studio, looking, thinking, "Wow, this is great." And uh, so he came out with a print in the tray, and we were looking at it. And he said, uh, "What do you think?" And big mouth me. I said, "Oh, it's a little bit dark." <laughs> of course, Corrales is going look at me. How dare you judge Eugene Smith? <laughs> I said, he asked me, man. He said, and he said, yeah, yeah, it's a little too dark. He said, I'll make another brand. Mm. He said, well, I got to go, you guys. We were there about 15 minutes, and then we left. But I had met him before, so I met him again at Life Magazine. And um, he was one of the people I really thought was one of the great American photographers. There's a lot of people, they say, but I, to me, Eugene Smith is, you know, one of the great, great American photographers of all time for me i think the first photographer that i really liked that i got a lot from and it was his prints the way he printed them you know was um uh not paul strand i like paul strand too i thought he was great you know but edward weston was a person that first touched catched me in a way that you can make a print 
It was so beautiful. It almost could come to life, it had mm. that quality. Mm. And I liked that very much. And so I strove to make great prints. Well, Adra, you had to define your style as well. So I know you spent mm-hmm. years in mu- around musicians and then years in movies mm-hmm. on movie sets. So how did you get that career going? And again, define your style. Like, you know, we need Adger for these shots, not anyone else. Well, I think that they wanted me because they could see that there was something in the photographs that they could use to promote the picture, whatever, like on Golden Pond was a great picture to work on. And um, I got to be very close with everybody, you know. Um, The Vondas. Because, they, yeah, well, they were real professionals, you know. They were from the old school where they realized it takes mm-hmm. a lot of people to make a movie, and their performance is only part of it, you know. They're the star, but if there's nobody there to record those emotions that they do, then you don't have anything. So they were from the old school. They were real actors, and so I, I really liked them a lot. They were They were great. And um, that's another thing in terms of working on movies. You have to establish some kind of rapport with the people that you work with, mm-hmm. you know. And um, But I got into the movie quite by accident. It started <laughs> because Ozzie Davis wanted to use a black person on a movie he was working on. Yeah. But before that, you know... Um, Sidney Poitier. Can I, I tell the story? Can I tell the story? Yes, you can. I think I wrote it in my book. <laughs> You can tell it, tell it, tell it. Sidney Poitier was looking for a photographer to work on one of his movies. Right. And I went to I went to see him. I hadn't done any movie work at that time. But, you know, I showed him my portfolio and he looked at it and he was going through the pictures and he was very quiet. He wasn't like, Hello, how are you? He's just a very reserved guy. And he got to a picture of Diana Carroll in the beautiful bathing suit and he closed the book and walked out. And I sat there for a long time thinking, what did I do? I didn't say the right thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I didn't do whatever. Mm -hmm. So after a a bit, his producer, Joel, I forget his last name, he came and he said, he said, I think he liked the work, but he said um, that picture of Diana Carroll, I think he really had some, still had feeling for her because they had done a picture Mm -hmm. in France called um, Paris Blues. Mm -hmm. And he was engaged to her at that time, but it never happened. So that's why he didn't come back. He just closed the book and walked out. So Joel said, I got a friend, you know, making a movie and he needs a guitar. He said, I like your work and your style. He said, "Um, here's his number. Give him a call. And, you know, I'm I'm crazy. I said, yeah, okay. I heard that before. (laughs) Call this guy and he did his job. Bullshit. (laughs) He said, oh, okay, okay. He said, well, hang on. So he called the guy on the phone. And I, he said, I got this guy, good photographer here. Maybe I'll look at his work. He said, no, right now, right now. He said, okay. He said, go over there. So it was only a few blocks. I walked over and he looked at my book and he said, hey, man, you're hired. Mm. I said, to do what? <laughs> <laughs> what? I didn't know right. what the job was. He said, well, <laughs> you got to ask. Yeah, he said you shoot movies, they're doing the production, and you try and get pictures that we can use to promote the movie. I said, oh, I said, okay, cool. So the first picture I worked on was Cotton Comes to Harlem, yeah, and it was directed by Alex Davis. Very, very nice. So that's how I got into the business. But getting into the union was another matter. You know, they allowed me to 
you weren't the work first. On that movie. Or were you the first black uh, photographer I, in the I, union? According, according, according to Bruce Tolleman, I'm the first African American to be inducted into the International Cinematographer's Union. And that was 1969, the fall of 1969. Yeah, I had heard that. So thank you for the confirmation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and I never thought about being, you know, first. I wouldn't, you know, I didn't even care. Mm-hmm. You know, when we work on a movie, there were two sound guys and uh, two Jewish guys. Very nice. They were friendly with me. And they said, uh, you know, there's a union. Mm-hmm. I said, and? <laughs> <laughs> He said, well, you know, you have to have a union card to work on movies. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I, I didn't have to have a card. He said, well, that's because, you know, Ozzie Davis wanted black people, and that was one of his demands, you know. Yeah. So um, I said, really? So he told me about getting in the union and all that. I said, man, I don't care about being in I said, I'm tired of working with these people anyway. I'm used to traveling the world and you know, shooting for this magazine and sending the pictures back and then going to Paris or London. So, you know, I had a good life. Uh, <laughs> as a freelance photographer traveling around, I didn't care about working a week. That was too long, man. I like working four or five days and making <laughs> thousands of dollars. That's right. Yeah. Saying. Try three months on a movie yeah, but set. Then I realized, <laughs> yeah, but then I realized they were trying to keep me out and that there were no black people in there. And so I found out about taking a test and I took the test and I got there and, you know, all my life has just been luck and accident. We're working on the movie and the guy who was the DP the first day on the set, he pushed me out of the way. He didn't find the camera. Mm-hmm. I had two Nikons and a Leica around and I almost fell down. And so I went back and I punched him in the face. Oh. <laughs> and he said, that's the DP, man. Oh, he was living. <laughs> I want him off the set. You know, he's gone. You're out. Of here. I said, no, Ozzy Davis. We had to work together. All through the movie, he hated me. I hated him. Every time I'm looking, I want to hit him <laughs> in the face again. Pushing <laughs> <laughs> he didn't say, could you move out of the way or get out of the way? Still, man. I mean, that's what you say. He just pushed me. Mm-hmm. Pushed me. Oh, wow. anyway, he's a mean little f- so when they told me, you know, you got to get in the union, you got to get names and everything. So I thought I'm going to ask him. <laughs> well, what happened, what happened, how it happened that I decided to ask him. We were working in Harlem doing the scene in the yard there and they moved some logs and a big bee came out and stung him right in the top of his head. Oh. And he was running around, all of his cronies, nobody could help him. They were all, he was, ah, 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 it was burning. In. And the sticker was still in his head. So I told him, shut up. You know, he said, what? I said, shut up and sit down. He sat down. He looked at me really weird. He didn't know. And I spit on some tobacco. I took it. <laughs> oh. And I spit into tobacco and I put some water put in some it. Water. I slapped yeah. it on his head. I pulled a little stinger out and I slapped it on his head. He didn't know what was happening. He said, what are you doing to me? What are you doing? He used to go, I said, be still. And so after a few moments, he said, he said, the sting is gone. I said, yeah, it's gone. I said, it's an old recipe I learned from my grandmother, you know. So uh, he mm-hmm. still wasn't friendly with me, you know. <laughs> after you saved so his life. Time to get... Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and all his cronies could do nothing. He's 
and he was one of those guys that brushed his hair forward so he didn't see he was bald. Right. Uh, he grabbed his head and we all he had to come over. Back over, comb run down forward. the side of his face over. and stained his face and everything. Anyway, mm-hmm. I said, "Yes, mm-hmm. Jerry." So I asked him if he would sign for me to get in the union, as he had yet get two signatures, and so he signed. You know, oh, nice. and he wasn't mad. He just he said, "Okay," and he signed. So when I go down to get in the union, he said, "Where are the two signatures?" I said, and they looked at each other and they looked at me. He said, "Jerry signed for you." <laughs> <laughs> I thought he hates you. I said, "Yeah." <laughs> He doesn't sign for anybody. Oh, he, we can't stand him. They, they say he's so mean. It's <laughs> a mean guy. But he'd come up the hard way too. So anyway, I got in the union by one vote. And this guy named Joe Coffee called me. He said, "Adger," he said, "You're a really good photographer." He said, "This union needs somebody like you." He said, "When the vote came down, he said it was even." He said, "He said and I broke the tie." Hmm. He said, "Because I think you should be in the union." And he was a camera person; he wasn't still retired at all. Mm-hmm. So he called, told me that's how I got in the unit by one vote. Wow! So that was 1969. I, I got to ask: when it comes to your approach with a subject, with a topic, or an event, how do you capture that moment that's really special and really makes people feel something? I wait. I wait. I wait until I see it, or I wait until I feel it, you know. When I went to photograph the Jukas in Suriname, the first almost four days, I walked around with my camera on my shoulder, not in front of me. I never used it, but they saw it, and they got used to me. And I walked around the village, and I'd meet people and talk to people. I didn't take any pictures from people at all. And then slowly, I've been getting to photograph people, and they did not have a problem with it, you see. If you go somewhere you've never been before, and you stick a camera in somebody's face and start photographing, of course they're going to say, what are you doing? Or what is that about? Or all kinds of things they'll ask you, you know. But I found that taking it easy and just hanging out, you know, Gordon did that too. Mm. You know, he was known for not just jumping in and photographing people, but talking to people. Find who are the people that you're photographing. How do you feel about them? How do they feel about you? You know, what can you do? You can grab and snap a picture, you know, but when you really blend with a situation, then, you know, that's what happens. It's like, even when I'm doing portraits of people, I never, never try to... um you know, jump and say, okay, move to the left, move to the right. Okay, smile a little bit, turn your head. I talk. Talk to them. You know, what are you doing today? How you feel today? You know, you got any money? <laughs> <laughs> anything. You pay anything with check or card. You control them to no. smile or talk or okay. say something. And then I, if I see something that I desire, I feel something that is there, then I'll take a picture. But I, I try to wait and observe. And I think that's the big, big job. Wait and observe, you know, don't be in a hurry. You know, in those days, you know, you shoot with a film, you only got 36 pictures. You know, nowadays these guys got cameras, you know, you shoot 930 pictures. They're <laughs> clicky, clicky, clicky. They're not looking. They're just shooting as many pictures and hope that one or two comes out right. They capture that moment. 
But it, in the old days, you only had 36 shots, so you waited. I always ask this question. What do you tell young people who are aspiring artists and photographers, or they might be just any other type of art? What, do you, what advice do you give them? Go get a job. <laughs> Work that nine to five. <laughs> Go get a job. You don't. You don't want to do this. Really. Being an artist, first of all, you have to have a lot of self confidence, and you have to know that what you're doing matters. It has to matter to you first. You know, if you don't believe what you're doing, nobody else is going to believe it. Mm-hmm. You know. I can say you're something and, you know, you don't do anything about it. You just stand around and look like, you know, I used to know this guy used to go to jazz clubs mm-hmm. and he would be dressed like a jazz musician, you know, the hat and everything. And he had a saxophone, you know, never played it. Hmm. But he was on the scene yeah. with a horn. He picked up a lot of girls. He said, oh, yeah, baby, I played on horn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, What's your name? Uh, different kind Second of horn. Number. <laughs> yeah, I probably had that horn. guy. Everyone's like, take it out, you know, <laughs> and play with him, put it back in there. You know how to play. Oh, Lord. But I think if you're going to be an artist, it's a calling to be an artist. It's a calling from the spirit deep within. I'm reading, you know, your book, Art in the Moment, Life and Times of Adra Cowens, and it seems like you would always freeze whenever there was a gorgeous naked model in your art classes. You mentioned a couple of times where you just couldn't even go on. You couldn't put um, paintbrush oh, to paper. Was, <laughs> the women just... I uh... was a kid. I was, okay. I was a kid. So, so what's the second time you kind of froze when there was a gorgeous model in the room, naked? Look, Look, well, first of all, was she gorgeous? Or... I, <laughs> look, let me tell you. I was, I said, I was in the class, and Robert said, Cowens, are you going to take the class there? I said, nah. He said, well, we got a new model. Before, they always had models that were all beat up, and, you know, they didn't look, their bodies didn't look good. They were overweight or they were too skinny. Mm-hmm. So he said, we have a new model this year. And I was getting out of my chair. I was going to leave. And uh, so this woman gets up, walks out. She's got on a silk robe, blue silk robe. She's very dark skinned, beautiful lips, beautiful head shape, short haircut. She walked upon the thing and just opened the robe and dropped it to the floor. Mm-hmm. And when she dropped the robe to the floor, I dropped out of my seat. <laughs> 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 she was, to me, the ideal body that I that I gravitate is small waist, ample upstairs, and perfectly round hips, like a <laughs> half a melon or something. Just beautiful. Oh my! Beautiful legs chocolate brown, and mm-hmm. she didn't have a pimple nowhere. She didn't have no discoloring. It was just beautiful color. No dimples. And so Cowan said, he, he said, Cowan, are you going to sit down and draw? I said, yeah, I'll be right back. I didn't After go back. I take a, you a cigarette break, you take a cigarette break. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, have a cigarette I need a real break. <laughs> but I saw her going across campus one day, and I stopped her and I asked her if she would like to go out. She was, said, she was, I found out she was 31 years old. Well, I was, what, 18 or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought she was gorgeous. 
and that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> I think, did you, did you get I the think date, she though? took you did up you on your date? offer. Yes, she did. Yes. And I went out and I was so nervous. I could hardly drink the beer. You know, I was like, oh, God, I don't think I can do this. But she made me very, very comfortable. She's responsible partly for being the kind of man that I am today. How that's so? That's all I can say. Uh, she helped oh, shape yeah. you. She helped mold you and shape you <laughs> into the man that you, you are today. A, a, man who loves, a man who loves women. I yes. Love women. Yes. And she had the perfect shape and color. Nicole, I'm gonna get you, Nicole. Pull <laughs> me out of the covers. You already got me, Adger. <laughs> <laughs> We've enjoyed this time with Adger Cowens so much. Be sure to check out his website at adgercowens.com. And visit our website at beforeyougo.tv. That's beforeyougo.tv. Thanks so much for listening to us here on KBLA Talk 1580. An encore presentation of this episode and our two seasons may be found on our Before You Go podcast on the KBLA 1580 app. And before we go, we want to remind everyone that these stories are what make a show like ours possible. So make sure you take the time to reach out and call those busy elders. There's no time like the present. What What a a gift. gift.